This episode is sponsored by Lob. Lob provides an API that enables developers to send postcards, letters, checks, and more as effortlessly as sending emails. Lob is trusted by over 6,000 customers, including Amazon, Square, and Council. They're kind of like SendGrid or Twilio, except for snail mail. They're providing the building blocks for people to incorporate print and mail into their application with their API, and their technology takes all the pain out of mail and can easily be integrated with any application. They have libraries available, and you can send one or one million at a time, and their web service is always available, and requests go through instantly so that your mail is more timely and relevant. You can use webhooks to follow your mail through the mail stream with live tracking events and PDF proofs. Lots of customers use Lob for marketing purposes, but they also have a lot of customers using them for transactional purposes, such as sending out HIPAA-compliant mail for insurance and healthcare companies, address verification postcards like couchsurfing, or billing notices. Go check them out right now at lob.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode number 236 of The Freelancer Show. On our panel this week, we have Jonathan Stark. Hello. And Philip Morgan. Hello, hello. And I'm Ruben Lerner, and we are talking this week about your first digital product. That's right, you, you out there in podcast land. So we've all done digital products, and we have retired to a small private island as a result of it. And it was no effort at all. So we want to share that effortless riches, uh, path to riches with everyone out there. <laughs> so maybe we should start off by like just defining some terms. Like what is a digital product? Digital product is one that does not consist of atoms. Or molecules. It doesn't need shipping. Uh, examples of digital products include ebooks, videos audio files what else paid reports that are based on experience or uh original research would would be in there uh i've seen paid white papers which would be a, another form of digital product i mean there's software i think we're broadly ex- excluding software from this discussion or mm-hmm. maybe not i don't know mm-hmm. but that's I, kind of an, software is not a digital product <laughs> Yeah, stuff that doesn't need to be debugged, but it doesn't need to be shipped either, like physically in the mail. Right, right. That yeah, like if, you, if it has a bug tracker, it's not what we're talking about. No, I mean, not that that stuff is not worth doing, but I, I think we will want to focus this discussion on, on this other category of digital products, which for most people, first of all, they're easier to make, especially if you're not a software developer and... um and, and they have some unique characteristics when it comes to profitability, which I'm sure we'll get into. Anything else that makes makes up a digital product? I mean, broadly, are we talking about info products? I mean, would you or guys that consider a mem- so. would you consider a membership site to be a digital product? Mm, I think it's a little bit not what I was thinking. Okay, so it's just yeah. sort of more of a static thing, right? Although, although you could probably make a good argument, and I think. One or both of you have done this, that someone who buys your digital product might also then get membership somewhere. But that's like a, a special add-on that's not a sort of core to the product itself. Mm, yeah, I agree. Yep. Okay, okay cool. So, so why should people make digital products? I, so I, I've used this term in the past, which I haven't really used it enough to reinforce it and make it a branded Philip Morgan term. But... Uh, <laughs> The term was a super freelancer. And I, <laughs> so I think about it as a way to kind of pave a road 
for for if you're a freelancer to pave a road out of uh, or build a bridge or whatever out of just selling your your services, just doing things for your clients for in exchange for money, which there's nothing wrong with that. But what I find is that after people have been freelancing for a while, they kind of get hungry for something else and something else that isn't directly tied to how much time or effort they put into something. Even if you're value pricing, there's still, you know, you, you still have to show up in some way to make money. And, you know, digital products represent, I think, the first step away from that. That's reason one out of a lot of more reasons. Yeah, that actually crystallized for me what it is we're talking about, which is something that is is virtually no touch sales and delivery. So it's it's something that provides value to the buyer that for the seller, so in this case, you, dear listener, you need to do virtually nothing for them to buy it. So there's a buy now button for the thing and it gets delivered to them basically automatically, maybe with some automation that you put together. And that's it. There's no there's no required follow-up. There might be some, you know, they might have some questions. You might have to answer something. They might not be able to open a file or something like that. But that's pretty much the, in, in my mind, that's what uh, I'm thinking about for today's episode is something that's no-touch sales and delivery as opposed to a productized service, which is very low-touch sales but high-touch delivery and custom work, which is high-touch sales and high-touch delivery. Also, so one of the cool. Oh, yep, sorry. Go ahead. I was, was going to say, say that. You, you go ahead, Jonathan. <laughs> the uh, the and to follow on with the super freelancer concept, it's a way to break the time for money habit. It's not value price, but it's a way to leverage your expertise and sort of sell the same thing over and over and over very easily without increasing your uh, labor intensity. I you know, I want to say that the first time I woke up in the morning and looked at my phone and saw that I had made money while I slept, it literally started rewiring <laughs> almost everything about how I look at the world. It, it was, was a real game changer. And, and I presume from people you had never heard of, never met before. You got that. I mean, the, yeah, the first couple sales were to people I knew, but um, at, at a point that changed. And yeah, it was absolutely... I never met this person. They gave me money and they got something valuable in, in exchange for that. Absolute game changer. Right. A lot of people, have, including myself, look at. No, so if we back up to 2006 or so, I think that was when I wrote my first book that actually got published. I, wrote, I started writing one before that, didn't make it. But uh, I wrote one, I think it was 2006 or it came out in 2006 that was a metric ton of work. I mean, it was a lot of work and I made no money beyond the advance on that book. And that really soured me on the idea of true products, you know, even an ebook, you know, that, that was a physical book, but, and I was looking at what I was making as a consultant and I would make, you know, not out of the question or unreasonable to make $5,000 in a day why would I spend six months writing another book and only to have it sell $2,000? 
Now, fast forward to um, today, or this, anyway, to, you know, 2016 just ended as we record this, and I'm sort of looking back over the uh, sales that I've made of Hourly Billing is Nuts since the end of July. And, you know, it's like, I don't know, I think it's like $12,000, but when, which is not, which is almost, I mean, I'm happy with that compared to consulting income. It's a drop in the bucket. It's nothing, but it's, it's a completely different thing. So, and, and that's, that my, my mind shift around this happened last year, toward the end of last year, I listened to a podcast on uh, episode of Brennan Dunn's podcast with Todd Tresseter. And Todd's a financial guy, and he talks about something like an ebook as an asset, which a, a doing a custom consulting gig is not an asset. You're just doing a service. But if you create an asset, that's a completely different thing. That's like having money in the bank that's giving you dividends or you know, giving you interest or, or um, stock investments that are giving you dividends. And he said, this is, this is what changed my my completely changed my thinking about this whole thing is that he was like for every thousand dollars you make a month that's like having five hundred thousand dollars in the bank and the book that i'm selling i put together in a a a short amount of time compared to how long it would take me to put five hundred thousand dollars in the bank so when you think about it it's like wait a second that's like a major investment in I guess my career or business or whatever, when, when you think about it like that, it's not the same thing. Like, it's not like you don't, don't divide the investment that you're going to, uh, the time investment that you're going to put into creating a digital product by the number of hours it will probably take and think, Oh, I only made $10 an hour to put that book together. It's just completely the wrong way to look at it. And I could not be happier with that shift in thinking. So I'm, I'm not sure I quite get that. Like, so, so you're saying that basically because, I mean, because I also wrote a book for a traditional publisher years ago and I made the advance and that was that. And then after a few months of sales, they killed off the book and that was that. And clearly with an ebook, I mean, I'm just going to keep selling my books more or less forever. And so is your point basically that because you can do that, you're going to get income forever from it and you should see it as an investment in a, a long term return or, or something else? Uh, I, I it's hard to get my head back to before I thought this, but I'm just saying that it's a different kind of money. Like I remember thinking before when I thought about all the effort that would go into writing another book that I was like, well, it's probably going to take me a hundred hours and it would be, you know, and, and maybe I'll make $50,000 from it. And it's just like, and eh, you do the division. And so I, I think part of the problem, part of my thinking back then was that I was going through traditional publishers. And once the, once the spike is over and the book kind of tails off, there's nothing that you as the author can do to kind of resuscitate it. You just, you don't own the, well, you own the content, but you, you know, you, you can't, it, it, you might not, I happen to own the content, but I'm not going to print more books. Like they're, you know what I mean? Like, I'm not going to print more O'Reilly books. They have to do that. Right. And so I suppose part of the shift is that I very consciously decided to self-publish my most recent book. And in fact, I was talking to O'Reilly about publishing a, a software business book because they've, they've kind of branched into that area now. And I just couldn't bring myself to do it. And I'm so glad I didn't. I love O'Reilly, but I'm, and I'm, and I'm, I think everybody who's a software developer would benefit from writing at least one book for O'Reilly. But 
at the stage that I'm at, self-publishing is the only thing I'll be doing in the book space from now on because you can communicate with your readers, which you can't do with a traditionally published book. You don't know who they are. And being able to have that communication with your readers or your customers is a complete game changer. It makes your work better. It makes their increases the value for them. It dramatically increases your profits. I mean, it's not even, you can't even compare. So, uh, I don't know. Those two things combined, I think, I, I think those two things combined to completely change my, um, respect for how powerful this is. I got a couple things to, to add there, if you don't mind. Um, the first, Jonathan, the first time you told me about that Todd Tressider interview, which I still haven't listened to yet, it's on my list. I think you, uh, in, you said asset, but I think you also said annuity. Like it's, yeah, I, I, he probably he probably did say he did say annuity. And I'm so this, bad. <laughs> uh, me, me too. But I think there's a slightly different shade of meaning. Like I just looked up the definition for annuity: a fixed sum of money paid to someone each year, typically for the rest of their life. And and I think that. Like that last sentence just has so much, the last part of that sentence has so much weight for me. It's like. You're right. You're right. The word he used was annuity, not asset. And it's like, whoa, it's like someone gave you a trust fund or it's like you weren't born a trust fund baby, but you be, you made yourself one. <laughs> right. Like, right. It's like in three weeks I built oh, a trust amazing. fund for myself. Yeah. There's just, there's this kind of emotional uh, charge to that, that really is very different. Like an asset, you know, you think of like a piece of equipment or whatever, but an annuity, it's like, you don't have to do anything. It's and, and that's not exactly the way it is with digital products, but um, I just say that because I think I think that's an even more exciting way to look at it. Um, and, I, and I think kind of getting back to the definition of digital products, I think we're also taking for granted that we're talking about self-publishing here, self-distributing, self-publishing. Like there, there's some tools I think we're going to touch on later in this episode that you use to make the distribution part easy. But uh, it, it's essentially self-publishing we're talking about. I mean, I, as I said, I, I published a book years ago. It's already 17 years ago um, on Pearl. And Jonathan, what you described is it's exactly what I went through. It was an incredibly long slog of writing the book. And I didn't get the sort of, it was not for O'Reilly. So I didn't get the sort of support, editing, technical, otherwise, that I would have gotten from O'Reilly or maybe you know, pragmatic programmers nowadays. Um, so I decided that I was just going to put out my, my first book on my own, self-publish it. And after I'd published it and after I'd had a bunch of sales, then a publisher contacted me and said, Hey, we would like to publish this for you. Um, and, and they said all sorts of things that they were, they were very nice and all, but I just couldn't bring myself to sort of time, tie myself to that sort of publisher. And it's not like I have a huge amount of interaction with the readers of the book, but I had literally zero with my originally published book through a traditional publisher. And now I get email on occasion from people who say they enjoy the book or they have questions or want to buy it or is it appropriate for them. And it's amazing. It's amazing to, to hear from these people around the world who are interested in what I've done and think that it will, you know, add value to their, their work. That's one um, of the so things. I, mm -hmm. I was going to just extend that by saying I think that's one of the things we're kind of dancing around here. That's another part of the why is – Self-publishing a digital product is an amazing platform for building an audience and building authority and building associated lines of business. So if I can steer the conversation a little bit here, I'd love 
because both of you have a, a piece of experience I don't have, which is that you've done conventional or you've you know, you know had contact with conventional publishing in a way that I haven't. And Jonathan, you mentioned you can't get your readers' contact info when you go with the Amazon or or a conventional publisher. Mm. What's what's been the difference in terms of that audience building piece? So one one thing that's worth saying is publishing through a third party that has their own reputation and their own sort of audience in a way. They're fans of O'Reilly. People buy O'Reilly books, uh, or maybe you are maybe you're the kind of author that's going to you know get published by McGraw Hill or like Random House or something. And there's definitely a certain cachet to that the same way that you get from any kind of social proof. Like, you know, if you speak at a conference, the organizers of the conference have sort of tacitly endorsed that you're an expert at this thing. So when you go with a third party publisher, you get the same kind of thing. So you're in this kind of, um, uh, I want to say fraternity, but that's kind of sexist. You, you're in this kind of group, I don't know what to call it. You're in this group of other, you know, yeah, I'm an O'Reilly author. I will always be an O'Reilly author. And that's a small group <clears throat> relatively. So you do get a, a big, from a, from an, from a, an authority standpoint, you get a really nice boost really quickly, which is great for selling consulting services, especially if you are completely clueless about marketing and sales as I was, because it automatically positions you as an expert on the thing that you wrote your book about. That said, you have no actual audience because you don't know who the people are who view you as an authority. So there, so it's, it's got this beneficial half, but then it's missing the other half where how do I get in touch with these people? Like they have to get in touch with me directly. So, you know, I'm not knocking going through a trad publisher for maybe your first book. Cause also you learn how to write a book and what goes into it and, and the sort of, you know, the sort of technical aspects of it. Um, so that's a good experience. Uh, but the ability to communicate directly with people who, who purchase the book instantly, like the second they, that someone buys hourly billing is nuts. They are on my list. They start to get a couple of follow-up emails that give them some additional information. And then once they get to the end of that, they give the option to join my daily list and ask me questions about the book. And uh, I mean, it's just, it's, um, it feels more like a continuum and a community where compared to a traditionally published book, I feel really disconnected from that book. It's a thing I did and uh, in 2010 and that was it. It's like the covers in a frame on my wall and I never really think about it where with hourly billing is nuts, I can see that like a community is rising up around it and, and there will be, you know, and, and I'm getting feedback from people about what was good and what was bad, which I can feed back into the content and also create new things to help people get unstuck from other things that weren't covered in that book. It's, it's, it's like so dramatically different that it's almost hard to compare the two things. I, I feel like with my book, I'm creating a community. I mean, that's not at all what I set out to do when I wrote the positioning manual, but I, I feel like that's what's happening. It feels more to me like a community and I'm at the center of it than almost mm -hmm. anything else. Mm -hmm. 
What about you, Reuven? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 first of all, I definitely feel like, um, well, first of all, the people who bought my book are on my list and, uh, the feedback I've gotten from people, especially now that I've been mailing stuff every week, uh, most every week has been phenomenal, including for the people who say, I bought your book. I enjoyed it. Um, you know, now I'm happy to hear more from you, which by the way, I mean, I'm obviously I'm enjoying hearing from these people, but this means that I'm also, um, sort of priming them to sell them up a product ladder, right? I'll, I'll have online classes and I'll have coaching and various things that not all, but some of these people will, will be interested in purchasing for me. Um, I should point out like, while I enjoy hearing from people, right? This is not altruistic. There is some, there are some business goals here. And so this gives me a chance to continue being in touch with them between their buying the book and me having something new. Um, but I, I, I feel like now I, I should also note, I guess we should get into this also. Like you, you do have to be sort of careful and very thoughtful about what you decide to put out as term, in terms of a digital product. Um, I mean, I came out with one, my Python book. And the results have not been like staggering, overwhelming, but certainly been very nice. Um, and I sort of went based on the same set of assumptions, same set of sort of market testing that I did on the Python book to the regular expressions book. And whew, <laughs> much, much, much uh, harder to sell that, let me tell you. Um, so while the people who have bought that have given me great feedback and have said that they're appreciative, at a certain point, there is a, you know, I, I want to make sure they're getting a good ROI on that. So maybe actually we should we should move into that. Like, how do you let's say you want to do a product? How do you choose what what to make, both what format and what what topic? Hmm, that's a good one. I think the answer to it depends a lot. Well, the advice that I give to people about it depends a lot on how mature their business is, or how, how which is another way of saying how sharp their focus is. Mm. If somebody's focus is still kind of like, ah, well, I think I like this, but I also like this. And, you know, they haven't found that thing that really turns them on. They haven't found, they don't have a clear mission in life. They're just kind of like really into the activities that they do every day, but it hasn't, you know, like whatever it is, coding websites or whatever. Uh, but they haven't, they haven't sort of grasped onto so they're they're more focused on their activities that they do and not the change that they're making in the world and until you get to that stage where you're where you're turned on by the change you're making in your you know, let's say in your clients lives i'm i'm reluctant to counsel people to to build something as big as a book because you know, it's too soon. I, in, in my opinion, it's too soon. The, my, my, I'm second guessing myself a little bit here, but there's a risk that someone who has a sort of soft focus or a self focus in their business is going to write something that no one cares about. I think the risk is very high. So I would say instead, if you have that, if you're at that stage where you have a soft focus, do something like a very regular mailing list and get into a conversation with people and find your focus first in a very low risk conversational kind of way. And then that those things will start to sort of crop up on their own and you'll start to find things that uh, your shift, your, your focus will start to shift into a area of your expertise, the one that's starting to click with people, you'll see like, Oh, everybody's asking me about this one particular thing. 
And then it starts to be like, ah, I have a, I have something that is worth devoting some real effort to, to put together. So, you know, cause and the other thing is once you do that, once you create an, an asset that is as weighty as a book or something that would qualify as a book, it's never going to go away. So, you know, it, I tell people when they're thinking about writing a book, the, the very first question, before I even ask people what it's going to be about, I ask them who it's for. And oh, that's good. Yeah. And a lot of people will be like, oh, well, this kind of person could read it and that kind of person could read it and this kind of person can read it. And I'm like, you're not ready. You need to decide who it's for. You'll go insane trying to write it because those three groups you just listed have very different levels of expertise with this thing you're talking about. They have very different reasons for being interested in it. And you're not going to know what to say. The whole book is going to be like, if you're like most people who are like this, then you're going to think this. But if you're like people like that, then you're going to think this, you know, it's, it's, it's impossible to write if you don't know who you're talking to. It's just brutally difficult. Or you just write something super vague that doesn't click with anybody, which is even worse. So first decide who you're writing for. Then, and then my next thing is pick a title and never change it. Once you start writing, you're not allowed to change a title. Don't start writing a book with a working title. So you know who it's for, you know what the title is, and a good way to think about it is this is going to be in the signal, like this, this is your potentially is going to be some very strong positioning for you. So like in, in, uh, you know, when I go on a podcast and somebody introduces me, it's Jonathan Stark, author of hourly billing is nuts. That tells you a lot about me just by somebody saying the name of the book. So if you're, you know, you want the book to be very, I, in my opinion, you want the book title or at least the subtitle, if the book title is just kind of a clever name, uh, you at least want the subtitle to be like something you can imagine Oprah saying as you walked out on stage, you know, like, like, Oh, this is Jonathan Stark, author of hourly billing is nuts. <laughs> and it immediately positions you as someone who's against hourly billing or, or Jonathan Stark host of ditching the ditching hourly podcast. It, it positions you as a particular thing. And then if your book actually delivers on it, it's going to explode because it's really focused and it, assuming that there's an actual audience for it, uh, you know, it's, it's going to have all kinds of, it creates what Alan Weiss calls marketing gravity, where it just creates this, it's like this, um, it's like this core of a planet that just has this, this gravitational force that things kind of build around and it just grows and grows and grows and turns into that annuity that we were talking about before. I do not disagree, but I want to look at it from the other perspective of like, so the person who's not ready for that, like the idea of, uh, you know, picking a title and not being allowed to change it or Jonathan comes over and uses his, uh, black belt karate skills to <laughs> kick your butt. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, for that person, um, I, I agree they should probably not start with a book. But also, I want to say that if you're used to thinking of, like I rail about this all the time, um, if you're used to thinking book equals 80,000 words, then really, I think that's the wrong bar. It's not too high a bar. It's a stupid bar because most 80,000 word books could be 20,000 words and they would be better. So mm, in, terms of, yeah. in terms of length, don't get, uh, it, don't get to thinking that this project is about volume, really 
you know, my take on what Jonathan was saying is he's right on. It's, it's really about focus and impact. And you can do that in 10, 20,000 words. And that can still, I think, uh, justify the title book. But w- what if you're starting smaller? Uh, I, th- I think you, you could think about um, something that's book-like in that it's, you know, the written word or uses the written word, but it doesn't really earn the title book because it's much, much smaller. So it could be like a, a report, you know, like the 10 things you need to do on your website to accomplish some goal. The price is, you know, $19. Even a product like that will change your life in the ways that we're talking about. When If you that first sale. Anyway, go ahead, Ruben. No, I, I think I've seen people, maybe it's Amy Hoy, suggest that people do that. That basically like they do a, a tiny, really low cost product first, just to sort of get their toes in the water, see what it's like to write something, to finish it, to sell it. And even if you're selling something for like, Three, you know, $3, $5, it'll change your perspective on things and give you insights into how to do it better the next time when you have something bigger. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, I I totally agree. Would you guys pay? For me, a book is like a long form, like at least 100 pages. Other than, you know, but but you don't have to start with a book. Like like Philip's saying, it could be a guide or a manual or a cheat sheet or. Yeah, I mean, would you guys pay $20 for some sort of template that saves you time. Oh yeah. Totally. That, if it saves me time. Sure. Yeah. That's a digital product. Sure. Yeah. I mean, a uh, friend of the show, Kurt Elster released a, I think it was Kurt released a, a, a book. That's just the email templates that he uses. Oh, you know, he right. just like went through his library of stuff that he uses, put it into a PDF and he sells it for, I don't know how much, but it's not expensive. I'm pretty sure Kurt would also share that that project was a weekend, literally not a whole weekend. It was accomplished over the course of one weekend, Mm -hmm. start to finish. Yeah. His superpower is shipping stuff. He's great at that. Or Amy Hoy's husband, Thomas Fuchs. He has a book called Retinify, which is about one very, you know, in the Amy Hoy model is just solves one specific problem. And when it was first released, if I remember correctly, I think it was $15. And I still refer to that thing now. And it's, you know, years old. It's probably two or three years old. He's released a couple of updates. I'd pay 45 bucks for it again without thinking. Because he's done wow. a crazy amount of research on a specific thing that is of interest to my customers that I don't want to research. So it's a no-brainer. I think Amy Hoy's advice is to find one specific problem and write a short piece or you know, a short video or something, whatever it is, that solves that one problem and you know, charge like 10 bucks for it. Yeah, and it's, there, there's a big argument. There's a strong argument for that. You're making me think of other things that I've bought that, like I paid, uh, I forget, 40, 50 bucks, I think, to attend a uh, webinar on a specific topic about email marketing, like how to do email courses, right? And um, now that uh, that's, uh, I'll, I guess we can link to it in the show notes, that's for sale by Josh Earl, who did the webinar, and now he just sells the recording of the webinar with some you know, ancillary related content for 50 bucks. So you know, it took him real time to put that together, and it was based on like literally years of experience. So there's a ton of value there, but what that looks like looks nothing at all like, you know, doing a book for O'Reilly, which is like a year of, <laughs> would you say torture? 
it's the, I always say writing a book like that, it's like running a marathon. It seems like a great idea at first. And then you're about halfway through and you're like, what the hell was I thinking? <laughs> I'm not picking on O'Reilly. I'm just saying any sort of traditional book project is going to have all this other stuff about copy editing and QA and code samples and stuff like that. Yeah, it's a diff- very different model because they're printing the thing. So it needs to be as right as right can be. And especially if there's code in it, oh man, I'll never do that again. Putting code on paper is just a nightmare. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I'm not knocking Riley. Riley's great. I love him. Just love him. Like it, you, you can't do better if you go and try publishing for software. Uh, really great. Uh, it just, the model is completely different. You know, it's not, uh, it's, it's a, it's a sort of waterfall development, you know, it's like lots of planning, lots of testing and a big release. And then that's it. Basically getting a little outside of, uh, products, but another example that occurs to me, I paid at some point $20 for what could not have been more than 50 lines of JavaScript code that (laughs) helped me set up, uh, a conditional, uh, call to action on my website. Like there's, there's all these things that have value if they're packaged and if they speak to the right, you know, like Jonathan said, Jonathan said, the right person, the right pain, they just, all of a sudden they have value and they can make a really great first digital product. Mm-hmm. So how do you find that? Right. Like how do you identify the, like the, the, the ultimate pain that will let you sell this ultimate product? There's, I mean, there's an element of risk. For me, the positioning manual started out as me saying, well, I'm, I'm always talking about how people should not be blogging. They should be creating educational resource centers on their website. I looked at my website. There was no educational resource center for me to point people to as an example. So I wanted to write about positioning, and I started conceiving of a series of um, blog posts that would be that educational resource center. And then, uh, fortunately, I, I came across Amy Hoy's book, uh, Just Effing Ship. And um, that just gave me that little push to say, you know, what if I sold this as a book? Like, you know, basically, what if I took this s- sequence of blog posts and wrapped a sort of digital cover around it and packaged it as a book and sold it? And so for me, it was um, taking something where I had interest and the willingness to write more than one thing about it and just package it up as a book. I'm not sure that's universally applicable advice, but it it sort of was a very humble way to start that turned into into something that really has revolutionized my business or transformed it in a very positive way. I'm sorry, I just saw the book. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Nice little punctuation to what I said there. Do you have a cash register sound when you sell a book? Hey there, this is Charles Maxwood, and I just wanted to talk to you really briefly about Freelance Remote Conf. I'm putting on a conference for people who want to go freelance or who are freelance and bringing in some of the experts from the Freelancer Show to talk to you about how to find clients, how to collect money, how to build your business, how to specialize, and much, much more. So if you're thinking about going freelance or you're already freelance and want to hear from the experts on how to go, become, or grow your freelancing business, then by all means, come check us out at freelanceremotecomp.com. Yeah, 
Yeah, you can set that up with uh, pushover and stripe. Nice. I love it. Pretty <laughs> <laughs> uh, great. Um, I mean, so yeah, it, uh, I was just going to pile on there and say that that that's that JFS book from Amy Hoy um, is does a great job of kind of describing the the way the I want to call it the new way, it was sort of the anti trad publishing way, where you just get something out there. Like I, I see, a, I see it a lot with students where. Um, there's like a certain, like, it's probably a 50, 50 split there. Some people, maybe half will just put something out there, perhaps maybe a little too warts and all. And then the other half will never release stuff until it's perfect. And therefore they never release it because there's no such thing as perfect. And it's, it's a balance that I think everybody needs to strike. You need to have, it's helpful if you have some self-awareness in terms of where you are on that continuum and make sure that you hover around the middle and you do enough work so that something's not garbage, but you don't obsess over it to the point where you never release it because the way that it gets, gets, you know, to use a security term hardened is by interaction with the enemy, you know, as they would say, it's like, you want to get, you want to get feedback and a good way to do that especially a good way to get valuable feedback is to hear what people who paid for the thing think. So anyway, I, I think that, uh, it's just the, the JFS book struggling with saying the title, um, definitely helped open my eyes to that, to, to, to not worry as much about my perfectionist OCD tendencies and to go ahead and release it. Like Philip said, and I mean, like, I, I guess I've been on occasion going through my regular expression book. Oh, I know what it was. I taught a course recently. And I said, oh, I don't need to give them a new exercise. I've got this whole book full of exercises. And I looked at the exercise. I said, oh, my God, there's a bug in here. Right. And this is after <laughs> going right, right. This is after going through it and being sure that I debugged it and, like, was careful about it. And, um, you know, so I just fixed it and sent out a new release. And that's that's a normal part of the self-publishing sort of thing that I think everyone expects. I think people are actually pleased and impressed that the author continues to improve and debug it after the purchase. Um, so I, I think that it's actually an additional chance to prove your dedication to your audience and for your audience to interact with you. Yeah. I mean, even the ability to, to release discount, you know, coupon codes or even decide whether or not someone should have a refund. I've, I, I like it so much more to be in control of those things than, than really having no visibility into it whatsoever. I don't even know how many traditional publishing books I've sold. I, I mean, I suppose this is all off topic. I mean, people aren't probably listening because they're not thinking like, oh, maybe I should go with a traditional publisher. But, no, but the advantages are so overwhelming. There's and, a and lot. Yeah. There are a lot of advantages. Um, I so I just want to add on that that perfectionist thing is a real killer, <laughs> you know. For it's it, it's a learned skill to uh, first of all to kind of move from being a Joe private citizen and the only people that you really have to answer to are your clients, right? And to take that first step of I'm going to 
charge people money for something, which creates this feeling of, uh, oh, like now you owe it to them to deliver value. And that's a good thing, by the way, that's like, that's mm-hmm. at the, I think the foundation of business is, is finding ways to create value. So it's not a bad thing, but it's kind of new to do that on a scale beyond the one-to-one client relationship. And also when you have a certain element of anonymity, I mean, your, your buyers are giving you information about themselves, but you still don't really know them. And then you, so it's, it's sort of a new group of skills. And I just want to say that because I I don't want to make this sound like it, it's super easy. It's, it's not, I mean, uh, Reuben kind of joked about that at the top of the show. It's, it's a learning process for sure. I think it's one that's worth it because of how powerful it is, how beneficial it is, but it's a definitely a learning process. I mean, the first time somebody says, and this, this has happened to me, uh, I didn't really get much value from this. Like the first time they write you an email and say, I didn't really get much value from this. And I have a very generous refund policy. Um, you know, it stings a little bit, to be honest. But uh, you know, when you stack that up next to the benefits, it's, it's like, well, I can, I can thicken my skin a little bit in that particular area. Right. Yeah, if, if you're not nervous, it's a bad sign. Like if you're not afraid of what people are going to say, it's probably a bad sign. And usually, yeah, I, I, I shouldn't say usually, but my experience has been the same as Phillips, where you get a you get a negative comment every once in a while, but it's just so rare. But man, it hurts. It like I can remember the one I can remember the one bad email I got about hourly billing is nuts. I lost sleep over that thing. The guy wrote a book about <laughs> my book about like whoa, oh, I thought God. it was going to be. You know, it was one of those things like, did you read, did you read the title? You know, <laughs> hourly billing is nuts. So anyway, uh, but you know, just get, get ready for it because it'll happen, but it's really, it's yeah. Philip already said, it. you just, you just have to get ready for it and have a little bit of a thick skin and it, it'll be fine because for every one of those, you'll get a hundred people who are just like, so glad somebody wrote what you wrote because it saved them so much time, money, effort, stress, hassle, so on and so forth. So should we, let's, yeah, oh, should we shift? I was going to say, should we shift over into to sort of tools and things that we use to get these sorts of things done? I was just going to say I, that. I, I just want, I, I wanted to, before that, just ask a little bit about sort of um, sales. I guess this sort of ties into it, but um, I mean, I know Nick D, for example, says that you know he sold his books on Kickstarter. And so basically got paid huge amounts of money up front before he even wrote the book. And I know some people, and I, I've done this, I don't know if you guys have, like I announced to my list, I'm writing this book and I've got two chapters ready. You can buy it at an early price. But when do you announce to people that you've got a book um, and it's available for sale before you write it, while you're writing it, really after you write it? I think that kind of depends on whether you have like what kind of uh, you know audience you have, and and I realize I tend to think about things in terms of an email list, but some people might have an audience on social media or you know some other venue, and that's that, that could work too. Uh, you know, when I uh, I've been in the throes of starting to build a, a course on positioning, which you know reflects a lot of the content in in my book, the positioning manual, but it's formatted as a course, and it really has a lot fewer options. You know, it's kind of like one choice and I'll help you move through that one choice about how to do things. 
And I, you know, I mentioned that to my list when it was like some notes on a piece of paper back in the summer, I think. And, um, and I gave them a link, to, a link to click to say, are you interested in this? Um, <clears throat> so you can do it that early. And I think there's benefits to doing that, but that kind of depends on having, you know, an audience in place and they understand what you're about and they, they get value in paying attention to you and that kind of thing. So I think if you are, if this is, I am thinking more, this is of interest to someone who's doing it for the first time <clears throat> and for them, um, I, it, this is going to make a lot of people uncomfortable, but I would get the first chapter written, you know, by hook or crook, however you can do it, the first chunk of content done. And then I, I would start talking about it and letting people sign up to get that as a sample or a preview or whatever you want to call it. So I, I would favor going early rather than later. But you're not talking about pre-sales. You're talking about announcing right. it and capturing emails. Yeah, that, that is specifically what I'm talking about. Yep. Yeah. And, and I, I 100% agree with that. It, the, the idea of pre-selling the idea makes a lot of sense to someone who's probably done the, trying to do this for the first time. I know I've had a couple of students do it and I've tried it in the past and it's, it's not for me for probably a surprising reason, which is that having people's money already puts a weird kind of pressure on me that makes it much harder for me to do the writing because I feel like it feels like an obligation. It takes all the fun out of it. So I don't do it. Uh, I, I can't let's see. I'm thinking, I think I've got one student who did pretty well with pre-sales enough to prove to him that he should, write the book, but he already kind of, he didn't have an email list, but he had an audience and he was kind of well known for the subject of the book. And it was, uh, it's actually, if people want to check it out, it's called ditching jQuery. You can Google for it by uh, Chris Ferdinandi. And he, but he, he was, he already had a really, really popular blog post on this topic and it, it had been popular for a, like over a year. He knew he get a lot of traffic to the page so he had all, he knew there was, there was something there already and he knew he wanted to write it so bad. He wanted to write it. So he had all the motivation that he needed, but he, he, I, I hope I'm not like talking out of turn here. I'm sure Chris will be cool with this. At least I hope he will be. But I think that he, it really helped him. It gave him some motivation to know for sure that people were really interested in this and they were willing to take their wallet out. Like I said, for me, it's too, it's, it's too much pressure. It's a different kind of pressure and it sucks all the fun out of it for me. So I am not a fan of it, uh, but it does work. So I think if you're super focused and you have some reason to believe that there's an audience, but you're not positive that it's, it's a way to do it. Okay. So let's, let's move on to tools then. Like how you got this idea, you've even written or you're writing. I don't know if you want to talk about writing tools as well. I think we were talking, thinking more about talking about publishing tools, but what do you use? How do you get the thing out there and how do you get people to buy it? Yeah, let's go, let's go around the room. Philip, you want to start? I, um, so I wrote the book. Um, I, I wrote, wrote, let's see, I, I've written two books that I later merged into one. So they're now, you know, together in the positioning manual wrote them using a, in Markdown using a tool called Ulysses, which is uh, both joyful and frustrating um, in different ways. 
I mean, it could have easily been done with, uh, you know, um, Vim or anything, you know, I just, that the tool wasn't a make or break proposition there. Um, I turned it into a digital form. I mean, it wasn't digital form, but I turned it into a PDF EPUB and Mobi form using a tool called Remark with a Q at the end, uh, which is a fantastic online markdown to PDF and other formats processor. And um, started out selling it with Gumroad, then moved to Sendal, and now am uh, pretty happy, uh, I think, for the hopefully the long term on something called DPD, uh, D as in dog, P as in PDF, um, digital products download. So just in a nutshell, that's that's sort of the process I went through. Uh, and then I used Drip for the email marketing component. And um, that's not really necessary, but it's also adds a lot of value in my case. What about so the processing? Oh, yeah. Oh, come again? So oh, using pay- Stripe. Um, and PayPal. I find, um, I mean, this might be interesting. Uh, I, I actually did some follow-up research on this. I noticed... Anecdotally, that a lot of uh, my customers, I'm in the U.S., a lot of my customers who are not in the U.S. seem to prefer using PayPal, not 100% by any means. And I haven't done a breakdown, so I can't tell you what percentage is PayPal versus Stripe. And I asked some people in my mentoring program about that, and or, I mean, people who are in Germany and the U.K., and they said that often PayPal um, gives you a better exchange rate or has p- higher perceived um safety in the transaction. So I like offering both and that's why I do that. Good to know. Someone just, someone international person just asked me if I was going to plan to use PayPal at all. She wanted PayPal. Nice. <laughs> I just, I love that we have the sound soundtrack going on. <laughs> what about you, Jonathan? What, what did you use? With for sound effects. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so I wrote everything using Sublime Text because I'm a software guy and that's my favorite text editor. I, too, format everything with Markdown. And uh, once I had that put together, I ran it through also, like Philip, ran it through Remark uh, from Jeremy Green and converted that, you know, it converts it into PDF, EPUB, and Mobi. Uploaded those to SendOwl. That's the one I use and um, connect all of that to, you know, when, when somebody purchases, then that goes to drip and it goes to Zapier, which then sends cash register sounds to my phone <laughs> through pushover. Uh, I am using Stripe exclusively. Uh, Sendow integrates with Stripe very easily and uh, you know, like I just said, it, it, I've, I've gotten at least one request for PayPal, and I do have quite a few people from overseas, you know, non-U.S. customers. So I'm going to look into that. Although I'm really, really not a fan of PayPal, but it's for for not for reasons that affect my customers, but for reasons that affect me. But I can deal with it if it's going to help people. So, what else? What else involved? Sendow. Drip, of course. Um, Remark, Sublime Text, and Zapier for some glue. But uh, that's really all there is to it, I suppose. I suppose it's worth mentioning why Markdown is very much of interest to me because 
my website is written in Markdown. And the emails that I send out, I send out daily emails. Uh, and those are all very basic formatting that are easily converted from the rich text format that you get from Drip into Markdown. So I save all of my articles as Markdown, basically. And I've got, you know, probably hundreds of thousands of words written because I send so much email. <clears throat> so I can rearrange that stuff into books or guides or uh, whatever you want to call them, depending on the length, I suppose, groups of essays and just run through remark and make a new book in, you know, no time at all. Basically, the amount of time it takes me to read the thing and edit it. So, you know, for the, I just relaunched Hourly Billing is Nuts, which is why my phone keeps cash registering. And the uh, in in the the oh, this we should probably talk about this in the relaunch. I offered tiers instead of just having all or nothing. You you know, just buy the book as the only option. And for the higher level pricing tiers, I included a bunch of bonuses in the packages, and two of the bonuses are two more short books or guides, I call them, that are pulled together from a bunch of individual markdown files that I just processed through Remark and turned into nice looking, you know, uh, justified typeset looking PDFs. So I'm a big fan of having that kind of, it's kind of like having a CMS, you know, in a way where I can remix the individual articles into uh, a focus, a particular focus so that people who maybe missed those emails or people who lost those emails or people who didn't save them and organize them into some format based on topic can kind of, you know, get a, get a quick 50 to hundred page crash course on, I don't know what I think about positioning or what I think about uh, talking to clients and making a sale or what I think you should say to clients when they put you on the spot and that kind of thing. So a huge fan of that, you know, Markdown plus Remark, it's really, really good. <laughs> so, um, I was brainwashed at the age of 18 to believe that Emacs is the only editor worth using for anything. Um, <laughs> and by the way, it's true. So, uh, so I write, so I write all of my books in Emacs. Um, but I also use Markdown, but not just, uh, cause I actually use, I, I sort of tried a few different systems cause I'm writing not only text, but I'm including code. And including code snippets turns out to be a little tricky. Yeah. Um, so I, I ended up using something called Softcover IO, and Softcover actually offers their own. They have their own like marketplace for books published using this toolkit. I've never actually used it, um, but the 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 toolchain itself, uh, which is written in Ruby, I think mostly, and has this sort of macro system that somehow converts Markdown into LaTeX. For those of you who remember that. So you can actually, like, if you need to really do crazy wild things, you can in a crazy wild way. So I've been using this combination of Markdown, a tiny bit of LaTeX in softcover written in Emacs. And then it produces, yeah, the, the three major um, formats, so PDF and EPUB and Mobi. Um, although my impression is most people are interested in the PDF, but offering the other two is not, not a bad thing. Um, oh, I've got... If Okay. Go ahead, but I've got some I've got some feedback on that actually. Oh, good, good. good. Um, and then I I upload those to. Well, I started off using DPD. It seems like we've all sort of we've done this like roulette between the three of us, <laughs> or like a you know, carousel between the different ones. So I started with DPD, and I moved to Gumroad. I'm guessing about two years ago, and I don't know. Gumroad seems to have been having some problems lately. They're not terrible, but they're not super amazing or improving a lot of things. 
Um, and one of the things that I liked about them also was that they do video streaming, which I don't think DPD does, although maybe they've changed that. Um, so I've actually been thinking lately about switching to SendOwl, which I know does and seems to be a little more, like, I don't know, active in terms of updating stuff. Yeah, I think so it's... So you were about to say, does, does DPD do it? Um, I'm pretty sure DPD does not have any kind of built-in streaming. Of course, you can, you know, let people pay for and download video, but would not stream it. I think we've we've all right. played sort of uh, digital product distribution platform musical chairs, and Cumroad is the one that <laughs> yes. looks like it's uh, going to be left standing. Yeah. <laughs> um, in terms of oh, and I also do uh, screencasts. So each of my books has a higher tier, two higher tiers, in which the higher tier has uh, screencasts. Each one, so like, <laughs> I, I I very ambitiously said, well, I'm going to have 50 uh, exercises per book, and so I'll give 50 videos per book. It turns out friends out there in podcast land. 50 videos is a very ambitious number to do. Um, it took me a long time to do the ones for the, the uh, Python book, and I'm about halfway done for the regular expressions book. So you should just know if you're going to offer that, realize it's going to be uh, a, a lot of time, a large time investment to get it done right. Um, I use ScreenFlow on my Mac to do the screencast, which I have barely touched the surface, scratched the surface of what you can do with it. But it's so easy to use, I just, I just use it and then upload it to, you know, as I said, Gumroad. Um, and in terms of payments, so here uh, I can offer you guys a little bit of perspective because outside the U.S. and a handful of other countries, I cannot use Stripe. So I must use PayPal. Um, and they're okay. I mean, I've never had to, well, they're a client of mine, so actually they're fantastic, right? Um, so PayPal, actually, I would say I've never had any problems with them per se. I've heard stories about people having awful, awful problems with them, but that's never affected me in the slightest. What does sort of bug me about PayPal is that um, they, so, so I get, you know, the book is sold in dollars. They send it into my account. And then in order to download it, well, download it, was weird, to transfer it to my bank, um, it has to be turned into shekels, the Israeli currency. And the rate they give is pretty lousy. Um, so I'm not paying a fee to have it transferred from Gumroad to PayPal, nor from PayPal to my bank. But it might as well be a fee given the rate that I'm paying. Uh, and I would love to have Stripe come in just to have a little bit of competition in this area, but I really don't think there is much else. Um, so that, that's that's basically like what, what I've been using. Jonathan, you said you wanted to add something also? Yes. The you mentioned what you know what formats people prefer. And one of the emails that goes out, I think there are four emails, three or four emails that someone who buys hourly billing is nuts will get after they buy it. One has some sort of follow-up information about download instructions. Uh, but uh, I think the next one is I ask a question about what formats, you know, like how do people read it? Do you read it on your computer and a laptop and a PDF reader, like preview or something, or do you read it on your phone, et cetera, et cetera. I also ask if people would be interested in a print edition or if they would be interested in an audiobook edition. And I haven't, I haven't scientifically sort of categorized the replies, but just based on, you know, reading through each and every one, I can tell you that there's no clear winner and and People read on Kindle, physical Kindles, even old ones still. And they read the Kindle app on their phone. Some people only read on iPad and they read the PDF there. And some people read PDF on the computer and they only read at their desk. It, you know, I was surprised a fairly low number of people care about an audiobook version. Uh, 
And a fairly low number of people care about print versions, to tell you the truth. So I, I think the sweet spot really is offering the three most common digital formats, PDF, Mobi, and um, uh, why am I spacing? PDF, Mobi, and EPUB. <laughs> but uh, while you were talking about that, I remembered a couple of other tools that are involved that might be worth mentioning. Uh, one, uh, I'll just quickly say, totally agree, ScreenFlow is amazing. It's totally it's just great for recording videos locally. Um, I actually included some videos in my new release of Hourly Billing is Nuts, but they're ones that I used, that I recorded using Crowdcast, which is another tool I wanted to mention. So ScreenFlow, very cool. If you're just recording locally and you're not trying to broadcast it, Crowdcast is great for, if you, if you want to do a recorded webinar, get Q&A, and then download the completed video after. I found the quality to be fairly high. I think Philip uses Zoom for a similar thing, uh, which is perhaps a little more robust, uh, not browser-based. And for people who do want to create a print copy of their book, I used Blurb, which is blurb.com, to print out 10 galleys, they're called, which are just sort of a, you know, it's kind of like going to Kinko's and just getting it print out and bound, but uh, without having to go to Kinko's, I guess. <laughs> Um, so blurb.com, I was really happy with the quality and, um, sort of experience of working with them is dead simple. I paid about $10 per book for 10 books. It was, it was maybe it's $120, something like that to get 10 books, which I send out to extra special readers, the signed copy type stuff. And lastly, but not leastly, uh, I used Git on the books, which I think is an important thing to mention, especially if you're a software developer. Uh, using version control on a book is a fabulous thing to do. Highly recommended. Absolutely, absolutely. So I'll, got, I'll, I'll also add to that, that I like I keep my everything in like small files, and then I sort of bring it all together. And the combination of Git and keeping things in these small files, you know, very modular. I mean, I can't imagine having a book in a large, like even you know, a chapter basis anymore in one long file. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's insane. I would like to observe that we have two software developers in the room and I heard zero mentions of custom code. If you are thinking that uh, selling a digital product requires you to write custom code, maybe even getting excited about that idea, like, it, oh, it's an excuse to create a tool. Oh my God. Really think Don't. twice about that. Really, really think twice about that. Um, it's it, In my experience, it's an impediment to shipping more than it is a value add. I mean, yes, I'm sure there's some edge case where you're going to have to you know, crank out some code to get your digital product to market and make it successful. But I think those are really are truly edge cases. It's a procrastination. Do not do it. It's I, also I like... not say that in stronger terms. Do not build your own tools. <laughs> Yes, there will be things about right. some of these tools that are not exactly how you would have built them. That's true. <laughs> Resist the urge to build your own. I've, I've fallen into that trap at least three times. It's a complete waste. It, also, these companies, like, they have teams of people figuring out all sorts of weird, crazy stuff about addresses and credit cards and refunding and whatnot. Do you really think that you can outprogram all of them? If so, don't write a book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, put, put your money where your mouth is and start a SaaS. The other thing is, I think 
we mentioned maybe 10%, like in the category of tools like SendAl, Gumroad, DPD, which are, you know, like digital product distribution and payment processing tools, we maybe mentioned 10% of what's out there. So there's other good options if one of those is not exactly what you need. Those are just the ones that I think we as a group have experience with. Yeah, and to take to take maybe take it back to the even simpler. I've, I've got one student who wrote an entire book in, I want to say two weeks in pages on the Mac. She just started started typing. Like there was no no wow. magic to it, and just jam the images, and it just looks great. It looks really good. Outputs uh, in you know I don't know if it output all three formats. It definitely she sold it as PDF. I'm sure of sure of that, but you know. It's, uh, it, don't overcomplicate it. And for crying out loud, don't build any tools. Focus on the writing. Have any of you had your self-published books copy edited? Um, I'll, I mean, maybe this is not a point of pride, but the positioning manual has never been professionally copy edited. I occasionally get reports of, oh, I found this typo, but uh, I, I do not ever get refund requests where somebody said, for, first of all, I've had like maybe, the refund requests I have had, I can count on one hand. And and never has anybody said, well, you know, this was all well and good until I found the third typo. (laughs) So just to add to the things you do not need to worry about, I think um, spending a lot of money on professional design or copy editing may make sense at some point, but certainly not in your first version, most likely. Mm. Yeah, I've got some strong opinions there. So it's hard for me to say whether or not someone should hire a copy editor. I didn't, but I've been writing professionally for (laughs) a decade. And and like Philip said, when I shipped the first version of the book, I gave people three options. You know, here's three coupon codes you can get. I don't remember exactly what it was. There was like it was like 30 percent off, 50 percent off and 100 percent off. And I said, you choose your own discount, but if you take the 100% off one, I'm going to bug you relentlessly about feedback, sharing it on social media, what I could do better. I'm going to, you're my editor, basically. And, you know, and in, in the, I don't know exactly what the distribution was, but not everybody picked the 100% off one. In fact, I would say it was not even a third of the people in the initial launch. But those people gave me amazing feedback. I got a spreadsheet from our, our wow. mutual friend, Anthony English, a spreadsheet with page numbers of typos. I mean, I'm embarrassed to say that there was a spreadsheet worth of typos <laughs> uh, and, and unclear passages. But, you know, do I think it would be a waste to hire an editor? Probably not. The thing that scares me most about hiring an editor is the friction that it introduces in the publishing process because it's going it, to it, it it reintroduces the idea of perfection. I feel like I feel like I'd rather see people release a beta copy at a at a discounted price and just be like, "Hey, this isn't perfect. I know it's not perfect. I'm giving it to you at a discount. Please send me feedback at this email address." I, th- I think that's more the new school approach to it. I, I guess that's more of a Google approach versus an Apple approach where they ship a beta and just get feedback from users where Apple polishes and polishes and polishes and then tries to release, release like a perfect gem. That's, uh, a, that's, so that's a good one point. Thing. Yeah, I mean, the position yeah. manual was $19, I think, was the price I sold it at now. And, it, I mean, I think we've run out of time to talk about pricing. That's probably a whole other thing because that... That's huge. Um, Now, the majority of the copies of the positioning manual that sell 
are the $99 package. So just to reinforce wow. that point, Jonathan, that, you know, the price, uh, sent, there's a version that's available at $49, but in a way the price went from 19 to $99, partially for that reason, because I was like, well, you know, I just kind of made this thing. It's not, it, it feels unreal <laughs> at first yeah. when you put it out yeah. there until people start buying it. And then it, it sort of be, it gets a life of its own because of your customers. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I did, did, didn't mean to interrupt yep. you. Just wanted to reinforce that point about the, the idea of starting with a beta. Yep. Yeah. I, we should probably, maybe next week we could talk about pricing these things. Cause I, yeah, we're, we're running kind of long. There's what, just one quick last thing I wanted to give to put in people's minds is that for me, I, it, the cover really mattered to me for hourly billing is nuts. I really, I had done previous books and they have these beautiful covers and it, for some reason, I don't know if it's important or not important to the buyer, but it was important to me that the cover was professionally designed uh, and, you know, and prepare to hold your nose designers in the audience. I used 99 designs uh, to get the cover designed and you know, I can, I can actually feel the designers right now going to the website to poo poo the design <laughs> <laughs> because designers hate 99 designs, but, it, but for, for potential authors in the audience who do want to have a, uh, you know, a nice looking cover designed, I was incredibly happy with 99 designs. I think I spent, um, 500 bucks. It's the only significant investment I made in the book, uh, in terms of financially, and I was really, really glad that I did. So, so you know, if, it feels, if, it makes if, it feel realer to me that it has a designed cover. So if designers are holding their noses for your cover story, um, they should hold more parts of their body while I tell mine. Uh, Cause I agree <laughs> that it's important to have a good cover. So I went to Fiverr and I found, I hired like five different people to do covers. And I just took the one that I liked most. <laughs> and, I mean, and uh and i gave some and i gave like feedback i was like well i like this and, and you can always sort of like pay more than the five dollars so i'm guessing i paid close to like forty dollars maybe to get you know uh i had to pay for an image and i gave like two rounds of feedback and so forth uh but i'm actually pretty happy with with the covers and i also sort of ran them by my family members said what do you think of these um I, 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 I book cover Oh, I was going to say, I made mine in 30 minutes in Keynote. <laughs> yeah. it, could, it could be better. <laughs> I mean, my, my Python book cover has this snake looking out at you, which is kind of jarring, but I, I like that. Um, and the, the Regex book cover, uh, I had one version that I thought I liked. They ran by my family, and they were like, no, terrible, bad. So I paid another $5 and got a different one. And what do you know? It was good enough. Mm. And the, the fact is, I actually like, care about design. But all I wanted something was that sort of uniquely represented my book or books that people would notice, people would remember me and say, hmm, maybe this is look, worth looking at, you know, judging a book by its virtual cover, as it were. Um, oh, and, and when I got it on Fiverr also, they included a sort of 3D version of the book that I could use in marketing. And this is both a plus and a minus. The plus is it looks really cool. The minus is I actually got an email from someone saying, hey, where's the physical book? Right. You didn't tell me it's ebook, so that was a bit of a mistake. Yeah, yeah, I've heard of that same problem. That's why I didn't go with the my my picture of it shows it in an iPhone for that exact reason. Oh, that's smart. Yeah, smart. 
So yeah, I, I did this. I had the same thing. Tons of tons of feedback from dozens of colleagues about which design they preferred, and it dramatically affected my final choice. And I'm glad I did it. Um, we should definitely talk about pricing. I was thinking also marketing um, and sale, like like how do you even go on and sell these things? But we we can do that over the next two weeks, even or uh, mm-hmm. future episodes. Um, any anything else on this subject before we wrap up and do picks? I'm a little Just surprised. Just definitely do it. Yeah. I'm, I'm a little surprised at how rich and detailed it turned out to be. Um, just go smaller. You know, if, if, if the idea is intimidating, what, what smaller thing could you uh, ship and, and put a price tag on in a buy button? Because, I don't know. I mean, it just, it's like, getting a new prescription or getting eyeglasses when you've needed them for a long time, you start to see the world differently because um, you start to see that you have more to offer that is worth money than just your time. Do it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, Philip, you got any picks for us this week? <laughs> I do. Jonathan, we'll, we'll let you, we'll, we'll let Jonathan attend to his counting his piles of money that have been rolling in during the podcast <laughs> episode recording. Do it. Seriously, um, I'll keep it short. Uh, actually, Jonathan turned me on to this book. By, it's by a woman named Ann McIndoe. It's called Seven Easy Steps to Write Your Book. And I think only one of the one or two of the steps was useful to me. But when I was uh, trying to organize the content and structure it for the positioning manual, uh, this Ann McIndoe book gave me this insight about how to set up a spreadsheet, oddly enough, that would sort of map out the entire book. And for me, being a somewhat uh, more kind of a visual learner type, that turned into be turned out to be a really useful way to do it. And um, I, I don't want to give it too much importance because I probably could have done it with a traditional outline or a mind map or some other kind of tool. So it's not like this is the one true way to lay out a book, but it was useful to me. It helped me make progress a little more with a little less friction. And so I, I feel good about recommending it. Um, again, it's uh, seven easy steps to write your book by Ann McIndoe. So I'll just limit it to one pick this week. Okay, Jonathan. Cool. Yes. Um, so we mentioned a bunch of things in the podcast. So remark, R E M A R Q dot I O is great. If you're a markdown nerd and you're planning on writing something, I think it's absolutely it pays for itself 10 times over right away. So I guess, you know, we mentioned already, you can call it a pick. Uh, JFS, Just Effing Ship by Amy Hoy. You should really check that out uh, to kind of calibrate your perfectionist meter in doing these sorts of things. Uh, Another one, On Writing Well by William Zinser is the best book I've ever read about how to write a nonfiction book, which is what we're really talking about here. Uh, nonfiction books. Great book. O'Reilly sent it to me for free when I became one of their authors. So another reason why O'Reilly is so amazing. And uh, I will link people to, well, I guess, nah, this is too abstract. Uh, I was going to link people to a, well, now I've said it, so I'll do it, but it'll only be of interest to people in the audience who use Drip. But uh, the one piece of code that I wrote in this entire process of creating a book was uh, a little PHP script to download all of my broadcasts from Drip as Markdown documents. 
it's a little bit difficult to export things out of drip in a in a useful way you can do it but uh, i needed to do it repeatedly not just once so if people in the audience use drip they might be interested in finding this uh, this repo that uh, published on github that will allow you to uh, download that stuff really easily as individual markdown files and i guess that's it for this week excellent so i've got two picks um, so there's this guy named uh, Patrick Smith, which is, I think, actually a pseudonym. Uh, and he's, he wrote for many years this column on Salon.com called Ask the Pilot. Uh, and I always loved his columns. And so he has a book, I guess it's an updated version of a previous book that I had not read. And it's called Cockpit Confidential. Everything you need to know about air travel, questions, answers, and reflections. And it is, for, if, if you travel at all, uh, whether you love it or you hate it, if you travel by air, I should say, it was just a, a fun, interesting book all about, well, all sorts of questions answered about how airplanes work, how what it's like to be a pilot, what they do and don't do. Um, my favorite piece of trivia from the book was actually, he says, uh, so you know, when the flight attendants say, the captain has been given the signal to land, this is 100% bogus. The captain is not given a signal to land or permission to land, and even if he did, he would not relay that to the flight attendants. So if you like that sort of uh, sort of being in the know kind of thing about uh, air travel, definitely, definitely recommend it. The other book, um, so when I was in fourth grade growing up in the U.S., we learned all about the metric system. And I came home very excited and told my mother, Mom, Mom, we learned all about meters and liters today because the U.S. is going to be switching to metric soon. And my mother said, yes, that's what they told me in fourth grade also. Uh, <laughs> so... So we're going to have to move <laughs> any day so, now. <laughs> so there's this fantastic book called Whatever Happened to the Metric System? How America Kept Its Feet. And I thought, okay, this is going to be like a short book about all the bureaucracy and why the U.S. doesn't switch away from the metric system. It turns out to be this wild, crazy story about Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin and the French Revolution and John Quincy Adams and back and forth across the Atlantic and what was going on revolutionarily in America and France at the time and how basically the metric system fell through the bureaucratic like cracks in the pavement uh, and or was a victim of like sort of political assassination depending on who was in charge. So if you're interested in uh, sort of politics, science, and why the best, um, you know, the best solution doesn't always win out, uh, I would definitely recommend the book. So that brings us to the end of this podcast. Thanks to everyone for listening. Jonathan and Philip, a pleasure as usual. And we will be back next week here on The Freelancer Show. See you then. Bye. Hey, everybody. This is Charles Maxwood. I just wanted to talk to you really briefly about JS Remote Conf. Uh, we just picked speakers. Things are looking really good. And uh, we're really excited to cover a broad range of topics for JavaScript developers. So if you're looking to learn things about Node.js, about becoming a better developer, about deployment, about mobile development, and much more, and much more about JavaScript, then come check us out, jsremoteconf.com. Uh, you can also find it by going to devchat.tv slash conferences and then picking the conference you want. We have last year's recordings there. We have this year's uh, conference coming up. So make sure you get your ticket and we'll see you there.